The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Man, I'm so happy you're tuning into this show. And I'm so happy it's summer, too. I am enjoying the summer weather. Not wearing masks, going out. Everything seems somewhat normal. I'm so excited about this summer weather. I hope you're enjoying your June. Thanks for tuning in. Great conversation today. Dave Alpern is on the show. He's the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. You know, and in NASCAR, as in life, the difference between winning and losing often comes down to being in the right place at the right time and making the most of every opportunity. And that's what my guest, Dave Alpern, is all about. He certainly understands that. He started out his career as an unpaid intern selling T-shirts for the newly formed Joe Gibbs Racing Team. He was friends with Joe Gibbs' son, and so he was with him from the very beginning. Again, as an unpaid intern at the very start. Now, three decades later, he's now the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. It's a multi-million dollar elite record-setting racing team with more than 500 employees. It is the winningest team in NASCAR history. And he's got a brand new book out there called Taking the Lead. And in that book, Dave shares the wisdom he learned along the way, the key principles that He's learned and is going to equip us with what we need to rise to the top and succeed with integrity and purpose, whatever team we're on. It's a great book. Um, So many good leadership books out there, and this is one of them, Taking the Lead. I highly recommend it. And Dave's a straight shooter, fascinating guy, fascinating story. And he's one of those, you've heard me say it time and time again in the show, those leaders who has this intensity coupled with this humble, teachable spirit. And you've heard me say time and time again, where that intersects, that sweet spot, that's the spot we should be striving for. And Dave uh, certainly agrees with that and is trying to live that day by day. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Hey, before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about my Dose of Leadership University. Again, I'm looking for new members. Started it at the beginning of COVID last year with 30 members. Shut the doors. I wanted to see if I could create something of value. It is a hub of leadership knowledge support. It's a community of like-minded leaders and mentors who are searching for significance just like you. And it's this interaction that is that is so valuable. We This interaction with a unique community of a diverse set of individuals, entrepreneurs, business professionals, people trying to, and at a crossroads in life, they're all part of the Dose of Leadership University. And if you join, it's a six-month experience. You'll get a chance to become a more composed force in a chaotic situation. You increase your self-confidence and belief in others. You can become that courageous force in the face of fear, amplify your capacity for compassion and caring. All of these things are important to us in the university, and we help each other with real-life leadership challenges, both personal and professional, so that we can become the best leaders that we were called to be. Another unique aspect of the university is you get to interact live with elite leadership experts. 
authors, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, people that have been on this show, you get to interact in a six-month period at least three times. Guests that have been on this show, you get to interact directly with them within the university. It's all about encouragement. It's all about insight, a different perspective from different people. It's about growth, and it's about accountability. It's $1,500 a month for six-month enrollment, but it's mastermind access two times a month, live sessions with me, mentorship access 24-7, 365 to me and my 15 mentors. Again, that unique interaction with top leadership experts three times within that six-month program period. All the sessions are recorded, so if you can't make one, no big deal. We'll record it, and you get to watch it exclusively. And you get a leadership certificate of completion when you're done. And if there are five or more people within your organization that want to join, you get a 20% discount off that $1,500 per person. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash university. Look at the landing page. Look at the testimonials. Meet the mentors that you'll interact with. And let me know if it's something that might be a fit for you. If it is, fill out the enrollment form. It'll email me directly, and we'll set up a time where we can talk to see if this might be a good fit for you. And if you need me to talk to your organization, I can do that too. I can talk to your HR director and see if this how we could tailor the program to fit your organization's specific needs. Again, doseofleadership.com slash university. Thank you for being patient. Let me plug that. All right, let's get on with the conversation now with Dave Alpert, the president of Joe Gibbs Racing, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Dave, man, I'm so excited you came on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. I really appreciate you uh, having me, Richard. Uh, it's good to be on today. Yeah, we were talking before recording. I was, it was fun when I was reading your book. I was like, God, this guy's got to be the exact same age as me. And sure enough, you <laughs> were. <laughs> so we could probably spend an hour reminiscing about growing up in the 70s and going to high school in the 80s and talking about Van Halen and all that other kind of 80s stuff. 80s music. Yeah, absolutely. 80s movies. 80s movies. Yeah. You know, my kids, <laughs> it was funny. You know, you probably, like me, you think about that in the 70s and 80s when you get on a bike and you just go. You know, we didn't have cell phones. My pa- our parents kind of knew where we were, but they didn't know where we were. No, it was crazy. Isn't that weird? And I no, just- I, used to, I, I honestly, I would ride my bike like my, two miles from home to go. I know meet friends at a store or something, and yeah, no, the thought that they, no one could track us. No yeah. one, you, yeah, it was. We were living dangerously, and we didn't know it. Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't know we were walking on the edge of a dam or yeah. shooting each other with BB guns or crazy times but man you know i love your i love your book and so many things and i love the story i love the fact you know i didn't know it was well, i guess that was a 95 i was in the marine corps i was in uh cherry point north carolina so north carolina is big on nascar yeah. and that's when i got into nascar and i i remember i didn't i just really started following it and seeing how much was involved in it and all of the things it's just so crazy how like right out of college well your buddy your best friend yeah was Joe Gibbs' son, right? And that's how you got connected with Joe Gibbs Racing, right? I did. It was crazy. And they so Coach was still actually an NFL coach at the time and a, a pretty good one. We'd been to four Super Bowls, and he starts a NASCAR team while he's still the coach. And J.D., my buddy, his oldest son, we were the same age. We went to high school together. He was playing college football, and I was finished. And really, Joe just needed a gopher, a go-between this new race team in Charlotte and RFK stadium where he was coaching kind of running, whether it was signing stuff or memorabilia documents, whatever. And since they knew me and they knew I would be cheap labor, 
um, they offered me the idea, you know, hey, be, come be an unpaid intern. And I thought it would be six months and it would look great on my resume. And right. I wanted to be a sportscaster. So okay. I thought I'll go do this. And, you know, I, that, that was kind of how I started. And then that led to them offering me, uh, I say, quote, full-time job. It was still unpaid. Um, they were going to give me a little bit of a stipend, like just so I didn't starve to death, but it was really an unpaid internship. And they, they didn't even have anywhere to put me. We were in an old, honestly, it was a go, like a garage. And so they emptied out a little broom closet and stuck an elementary school desk in there with an extension cord. And they were like, have at it. And I had, I mean, you talk about a job description. I had no job description. I had no computer. We didn't even have the internet. Again, you just established that we were old. So this is early, this is early nineties. So there's no internet. So I got a spiral notebook. I got a phone with a long cord and a lamp and absolutely no idea what I was doing. And that was kind of the, that was the start of it all. But I was working that what I loved. And I say this a lot is that I, to me, the who was more important than the what. So who I was doing it with, I had my best friend who I, who I, you know, kind of a role model to me. I had Joe Gibbs, who was a mentor and, you know, kind of my hero. Yeah. Um, the fact that we were going into auto racing was really cool. I'm glad we weren't selling coat hangers, but had we been selling coat hangers, I still would have done it because of the who. And so, you know, I think that's an important thing when you're, you know, if you're making a career choice is who is really important. Yeah. And I guess how, I guess when you look back at it, certainly you have a certain amount of marination and wisdom looking back and saying, oh yeah, this is why I did it. But was it that intentional back then? Like, you know, because okay, so you you had this dream of being a, a broadcaster. Yeah. But just the fact that because it's amazing to me the fact that you okay you're around you're witnessing this and obviously you've known you've known them for a while now and obviously you've probably you know seeing how coach you know as you said he's a mentor to you so you're 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 already absorbing this in you've got 5 yeah. 6 years of absorbing this in maybe even 10 years at this point I can I don't know the exact time but the fact that he as he even in your book you said you know he basically had an idea on a dream and, and on a sheet of paper and that's all it was and the fact that you can create that from that, it, that to me, being around that had to be just totally inspirational, right? I mean, well, it, it was, and we didn't know, we didn't know how long it was going to last. We certainly didn't know it was going to look like it looks today. I mean, we had about fifteen people, and we thought that was the business we were getting. And again, keep in mind, we have about five hundred now, so yeah. it's a completely different business. But at the time, what what Joe has built the career around, and I've got to watch him do, is is picking people is surrounding yourself with, you know, either people smarter than you in a certain area or better than you and and knowing how to do that. And he did that in football. Interestingly, his, what he was great at in football wasn't just identifying the all-stars. It was identifying the diamonds in the rough that even people that other teams had cast it off because his formula for being a great player was different. And just like in work, and I have a chapter that talks about fitting the Joe mold Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's character first, it's heart second. How much do you care about what you're doing? And then it's talent third. And, you know, third is important, but it's not the most important. And sometimes the most talented people are cancers to a team because they're just not, Mm -hmm. they don't have the character, they don't have the heart and they're not good. So Joe is really good at picking people. And so early on, he knew, look, I don't know racing. I'm not the technical guy like I was in football where I was making the, designing the plays. So he went out and found a guy named Jimmy Makar. said, I'm going to find him. He researched and said, who's, who is the guy that's the technical guy? And he went out and he found him. And then he said, let's many. And then the two of them said, who is the best driver we can get to come drive for this dream? And they went and got Dale Jarrett, who ended up being a, mm-hmm. a NASCAR champion. And so 
it was piece by piece picking the right people. And then those people helped pick the next group of people and so on and so forth. And, you know, it was very methodical. And, you know, I, I mentioned how even when we grew, so keep in mind, we're a four car team. Now we're different than most pro sports teams in that we have four teams competing against each other every right. Sunday. So there's 40 cars that race four of them are ours, but we weren't always four cars. We started as one, then went to two, then went to three. And one of the things that Joe did that I thought was really smart at each expansion, he, he let the existing team or teams help pick the new team. Interesting. And his reason for that was, so so we went from one team to two. He got Bobby Labani and Jimmy Makar, our driver and our crew chief, in a room. And he said, we need the scale to make, this will make you better if we can grow. They're, they're scale to doing it. But I don't want you to ever come in and say, I can't work with those people. So I'm going to have you pick those people. <laughs> so they wrote names on a piece of paper. And, you know, and then we picked Tony Stewart and, and, that's how he approached it was we're going to do this as a team and we're going to be all in together. And so our motto here now, we have four cars racing against each other, but it's four cars, one team. When you're inside this building, you're all on one team. And it's not until Sunday when you put your individual colors on, you know, that you you're trying to win for that individual car, but you're doing it with the the overall greater team in mind. Hey, you know, I love all of that. And, and there's so many things that so many questions yeah. come to mind. The thing that I was, I'm going back to, and I'm thinking about, okay, so what are you when, when Joe Gibbs racing starts, what year is that again? Help me refresh what year like, that is. So 90, really 91 is when it was formed. 92, I guess. First yeah. Season. So you're 22, 23 years old. Right. And I'm kind of, yeah. I'm thinking about the type of man, young man I was at 22 and 23. And here we are at 52. And I remember how kind of um, I was thirsty, right, to, to to do something of significance, which I'm sure you probably were too, right? Yeah. And you're around this thing, but I, I just when I look back at how arrogant, how ignorantly arrogant I was, and I don't when I say arrogant, I wasn't wasn't a, right. a, a douchebag, yeah. but ignorantly arrogant. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. I guess yeah. what I'm getting at is contrast how you were then to now and like and when did the leadership kind of thing start to become oh yeah i gotta start were you already did you already see yourself as a leader then at that point you know i I did the one of the reasons i wrote a book was most books and most leaders um who write books write them from the perspective of a of what i call the alpha leader and that's what joe is is that that person that walks in the room and you know they're in charge and they want to be in charge. And my style of leadership is very different and it's more of a reluctant leadership. And, and so to answer your question, I, I didn't really see myself because I, I thought you kind of had to be that alpha. Um, and I was really more comfortable as the sort of chief of staff, you know, the, the sage advisor in the background that would advise the alpha leader and I was good at that. And I found a niche. Now that's not to say, look, I'm very extroverted. I love talking to people and getting up front. And so, you know, but I think when I started out, I already struggled with self-confidence to be, to begin with. So really the, it was, it was not wanting to let them down. That was one of my biggest motivations is, you know, Hey, JD could have picked any friend. He picked me coach, you know, could have picked anyone. He picked me. I'm not letting them down yet. I'm not really the best at anything. I have no real skill <laughs> except with people. So 
I kind of said, hey, I'm going to make a niche for myself. And again, the book documents all the different things I tried to do to create value for myself. And and I think any stage that you are in your career, there's some good lessons there of, you know, making yourself indispensable and being great at little things and not saying that's not my job, but just being great right where you are instead of complaining or wishing you were further along down the, you know, down the or up the up the ladder, should I say. So I think early on, I did not view myself as a dynamic leader. Um, you know, I, again, I, I I did some things where I led younger kids or mentor, mentored through, you know, ministry, young life, and you build relationships. So I knew I I knew I I had some traits that maybe people younger than me wanted to to follow. But from a business standpoint, no, I, I really struggled with that, and and actually still do. Again, I've I've grown in my no, confidence I'm, over a thirty year career, but. Um, it's not as natural for me. I don't have that personality that wants to be, like I said, coach in any situation can just insert himself and instantly he's in charge. And I don't, I don't have that. And, and, and I want people to know you can be a really good leader and not have that. That was one of the reasons I wrote a book. No. And I love that answer. And I, and I, I was hoping you would say something like that. And I was right. Even cause I got that sense from reading the book. Cause I was the same way. You know, I, I think there was a part of me that thought I had to be the guy that walked into the room and like coach walks in and, and he has that kind of, he, he just has it. Right. And I'm with you. I don't, I can't walk into room and have it because I can be extroverted, but I'm naturally introverted. Right. I like doing this, you and I talking, if you right. put, put me in a networking event and I kind of turn to mush, you know, it makes me anxious. And I see that in you too, that like, Hey, yeah. The reluctant leader, and I, I I struggle with that in the Marine Corps. This kind of Type A, where this kind of strong personality Type A stand out, and I thought I had to be that way, and that wasn't authentically me. Then I started meeting some leaders who weren't that way, who, like you, I think the key when I read your book, it's about adding value, and that's what you got. That's what you've seemed to figure out, and that's what your book is about. It's about adding value. It's not about being this larger than life charismatic force. And and. And you mentioned you're an introvert. I'm actually an extrovert. So I do love networking events, but mm-hmm. there's still a difference between, you know, going to a networking event and walking to in a, walking in a room and being that guy that, that mm-hmm. oh, you know, it, that wants to command, like, I want to be in charge or, or, or in business, I want to be the one that makes the decision. You know, that's, that's what you're talking about, that type A mm-hmm. alpha where I'm not always like that. But honestly, coach and I probably would have killed each other if I was like that. And right. so I think that's one of the reasons it's worked well is because we've uniquely complemented each other in our styles in that I don't want to be that guy. He's not the way I am. And so we are a good balance and a good complement, particularly in the relationships that we hold with the people that we work with in the business is that we're, you know, again, we're, we have different styles of leading. And, and again, there isn't a right or wrong one. And I talk a lot about that in the book, again, to know that there isn't a right leadership profile. Exactly. You can have any personality profile and be a really good leader. Absolutely. Um, you know, because every, every strength comes with a corresponding weakness and you just have to know what those are for yourself. And again, one of my weaknesses was lack of confidence. I mean, it actually was inhibiting me from being a better leader. And to some degree, it still does. Like, I, I just don't, I think there's people that sometimes might even think I'm aloof because I, I might be in a, set, a setting where I don't come up to them. And it's only because I just don't, 
I, I might think they don't want to talk to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, or or right. what business do I have to go butt in? They're in the middle of talking to somebody. Whereas, you know, sometimes that alpha leader is just going to go barge in and say, it's me. And, and you know what I mean? They don't yeah. think anything of it. And I sometimes envy that, but that's not me. Yeah. But I think, I think your key is like having that awareness of who you are is I think is 80% right. of the battle, if not more, you know, and you're right. Not, there is no one style or mold of leadership or personality that favors leadership. Yeah. I think you can be, and as, as you lay out in the principles in the book, I mean, it has, has less to do with introvert versus extrovert. You know, when like your first principle delivering more than you cost, anybody can, yep. anybody can make themselves indispensable if you work at it, if you become intentional about it. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's It's an absolute choice. Every day. Um, And it's, again, it's little things. And, and, you know, I, I remember when Joe, you know, Joe's, Joe's written a couple books and I love them. And, you know, when I will read those books, I often think, you know, I read it for inspiration, but I don't as much relate to Joe because he's in two sport hall of fames. (laughs) He's brilliant at football. You know, he's just in another category as me. And so again, one of the reasons I wanted to write a book was, I think everybody can relate to me because I am, I am in, in, in most things, just an average guy. I mean, I really am. And I, and I, there are some principles that are a choice that have helped me in my career, but you know, it's not like I was you know, this elite gifted athlete. And now I had this wildly successful athletic career or that I'm a brilliant engineer and wrote a book about it just because I was gifted with you know, being the smartest, I'm none of those. And, and, and sometimes that can be discouraging because you think, well, again, to be a leader, I have to be the best at something. And sometimes there's things, you know, you could be a leader. And and one of the other things that's important to note is your title has absolutely nothing to do with leadership. Um, A fancy title may put you in a different sphere of influence, but you can still be a leader. You can be the lowest rung at your company, have no one reporting to you, work in a cubicle and look at a spreadsheet all day and still influence people and, and show leadership skills and make yourself indispensable. And that's kind of how Absolutely. I wanted to approach this book is for that person to get just as much out of it as the person who might already be what would be defined as a, you know, as a, as a typical leader. Yeah. I love that you said that. In fact, I would think that was really a huge mission of this of this show is to expose exactly what you just said. I mean, how many times have, have you seen, we have all seen in our careers, it's like that hidden, I, I get so excited about that, that hidden leader, that person doesn't know they, how much influence they have. I mean, the middle, the engine of any organization, the middle and below and the people on the front line, they have so much impact on the culture. They have so much influence and impact on, on where the brand goes and, and what where the direction of the company can go. I mean, I, that is something I always try to champion, right? I mean, I wish more people yeah. would see that. Well, one, one of the things I talk about is when, one of the traits of a great leader. So think about, think about the great athletes. Um, uh, you know, to, hey, look at Tom Brady. I bet every coach would tell you about Tom Brady. If you said, what's one thing about him that stands out, they would say he makes everyone around him better. And the point is yet, is he uber talented? Of course he is, but his greatest trait may not be his talent. It's how he makes everyone around him better. And I think in in an organization, what is lost on particularly young people when they're coming up, what I, what I want to, you know, tell them is, you know, 
you having a you focused mindset versus a me focused mindset actually is a great leadership trait that's attractive yet you know and i have three boys their whole life has been a competition so i don't know why it's a surprise when they get into the workforce that they're focused on themselves more than they are making others around them better i mean think about it in school it's class rank it's i got to get into college i got to get on this sports team i got to fight for this job you know you're you're always looking over your shoulder <laughs> right. trying to beat the person next to you and then all of a sudden when you enter the workplace what what people don't understand is what actually is attractive to the decision makers is that person who yes we want you to be all those things and to be good at what you do but who's the encourager who's the fountain in the office place who's the one that everyone that 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 adds value to every meeting that again is doing things behind the scenes without trying to get attention for them that eventually comes out and you go player Everyone around them, under, equal, above, is getting better because of that person. That's the person that you want on your team, not the, not the egomaniac that's trampling other people to right. get the attention or whatever. Maybe you're great at what you do, but if you're not making the team around you better, that doesn't. You're, you're, that's that is not making you a leader. And so that's a lost art, and that's something that I, I, you, it's hard to program. It's hard for me. You know, it's just hard to think. I want someone else to get credit or I want to make someone else better. Uh, no, but man, you're hitting on so many great points. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's like if we're everybody and particularly young folks, like you said, and you're hard chargers and you want to be a high performer and you're right. And, and if you want to be a person of influence, it's about adding value with every transaction. It's like being intentional with everything that you do, every interaction, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a project or due date, whatever the case, every, just add value. Just like in your first principle, deliver more than you cost. And, make and even, even if you're highly paid, you know, like I said, I, I've said before, Ron James pay, makes a lot. He delivers more value than he's paid, you know. Uh, maybe not if they get kicked out of the playoffs, but um, no, but but really, and that so it's not just when you're starting out; it's at any phase. And don't have the attitude. Well, they're not they're not paying me for that. And the, the, that's again oh, the idea is yeah. they're paying you, um, but don't you know deliver more value than whatever that amount is. And and for the record, if you want job security, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. That's something that you control. And asking, um, you know, how can I add value to this, this situation? What can I do? And, and it rarely has to do with just being the best at what you do. Again, clearly that has a factor. And depending on your job, look, I work in racing. If you're a talented race car driver, that is going to take you very far, your talent. But there are other components to that as well, mm -hmm. how you treat people, how you represent your sponsors, things like that. But in most jobs, your talent cannot carry the day. It, it's, it's all these other things, you know, again, and it starts with just having an others focused mindset, which is again, very counterintuitive. If I'm worried about, well, man, I, I gotta, I gotta make a name for myself. I gotta get a raise. I gotta get that promotion. Your first thing isn't thinking, Okay, how can I make <laughs> yeah, how can I make Bob over here or Sally over here? How can I encourage them? You know, you're not thinking of that. You're thinking of of yourself. But yeah, you're right. I mean, but that's the funny thing about that principle is that the more that you do that, all those buckets that you're chasing trying to get filled, they become overflowing when you stop thinking about yourself. When you when it's so external and so about adding value to others, all that stuff you're chasing it becomes overflowing. May not happen in, in your time frame, but it'll happen. Uh, you know, I I agree with you. Yeah.
I love how you, I mean, everything we're talking about there is, is really your first principle in your book, the first four chapters, everything we're talking about there. Yeah, the delivering more value than you cost. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, and it's a good lesson, particularly as for people earlier in their career um, who might be frustrated with where you are and, you know, trying to fight that urge not yeah. to say it's not my job and just to be great at little things because everything you're doing may feel, may feel like a little thing. And I love how you said that the talent, the talent is a given, right? I mean, that, that's just like everybody focuses on that. And that's how I kind of, what I just heard you say. It's kind of reminding yourself that's just a given. You have to be good at something, you know. You, you have. I just assume you're a good race car driver if you're if you're in this league. You know that that's the given. Yeah. What else are you going to bring to the table? Well, that that applies to the customers that we deal with. So we're eighty percent of our revenue comes from corporate sponsors, mm-hmm. and so we've got to we've got to deliver more value to them. So whether it's FedEx or Toyota, or again, go down the list: Mars, Stanley, Black and Decker, Fast Pro Shops. All of those people just what you said, they're, they're paying to win races and lead laps. Mm-hmm. They're expecting that. So if we said to them, well, Hey, we're a really good race team. We lead a lot of laps. We win races, but that's all we did. None of them would be part. Exactly. It's, it's how are we making them better? Mm-hmm. How are we helping them in their business? How are we solving problems? You know, figuring out solutions to some of their business challenges. How are we connecting them together? you know, C-level executive to C-level executive to do business together. How are we, how are we so ingraining ourselves in their culture that we become indispensable um, as a race team? Uh, That's what, that's how you keep business is by over. And it's not just the metric that, you know, again, we're, we're measured on winning races, but that is expected. So it's, it's winning and what are the ands yeah. that are the deliverables for each partner? And we've got to deliver those or we're not going to have them as a partner anymore. And so, again, I think it's true as, a, as an individual. And it's definitely true in your business that if you're doing if you're skating by just doing what's in the contract, you're not going to have a customer for very long. Very, yeah, well said. And by the way, if you ever even take out the contract, you're not going to have a customer for very long. I can tell you in <laughs> right. 30 years, that's our philosophy around here. We are never pulling out a contract. And the day we do, that relationship's over. If you ever have to pull out a contract and say, well, see what it says here in page mm-hmm. three, paragraph. No, no, it's a relationship. You over deliver. It doesn't matter what it says in the contract. Oh, I love pulling that. it out, you've got problems. I love that. And I love the conviction, how you talked about it. I see how that's real important. It's interesting about, you know, again, I'd love to immerse myself you know, be a fly in the wall and, and see what the culture is like there. I imagine it would be something I would, I would love to be around, but you talk about that in your book about creating a winning culture. And it's a word that gets bandied around a lot or a concept. It, it, everything is about culture though. Right. I mean, it, what is it for you? That's important. How does it, you know, you talk about there in the chapter seven about fitting in the Joe mold. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. What, 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 what is your culture like? How are you intentional about it? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about the Joe mold being that, you know, character, heart, yeah. talent. Um, but I think, and again, the, cult, the culture, Joe says it all the time, you don't win with tricks or parts, parts and pieces, you win with people. So the culture starts and ends with your with your people. And um, I talk about this little formula in the book that um, corporate culture is a formula. Um, if you think of a math problem, corporate, corporate culture equals corporate beliefs plus company behavior plus the leader's personality. And so, um, you know, what's your company believe? How does it behave? And, you know, who's your visible leader or leaders? And are they consistent with that? And, and again, for us, 
it's been a family business that has started with a core set of values that have been lived out consistently by our leader coach. And that permeates in the people that he picks. Um, but when you talk about a culture, I mean, it starts with, first of all, your mission, and that is having a business that knows what its mission is. And for us, and we can talk about that, it's been one simple mission, which is, does this make us go faster? Because Joe had the philosophy early on, if we stay on mission and we focus solely, first and foremost, on going fast, which leading laps, winning races, everything else will take care of itself. And, and, and you know, I have a saying, nobody cares what you think if you stink. So <laughs> in life and in business, our first mandate is to be really, really good at what we do, because if we're not, nobody is going to give a rip what we think about anything. You're going to have no influence. You can't be a leader in, in, in a, you know, if everybody, you know, um, in a, in a, on a, I guess being a leader on a sinking ship isn't a very influential place to be. So first and foremost, we are called to be great and that's whatever you're doing. So I think as an organization, one of the reasons our culture is the way it is, is because we've stayed on mission. What are we about? We're about winning races. And then what's ingrained in our culture is the why. Okay, we're to be great and win races. Why? Because it gives us a platform. It allows the people that we employ. It allows the partners that we work with. It allows the fans that root for our team. Um, it, it gives us a platform with that group of, with those different groups to encourage them, to help make them better, to whether it's giving of our money, giving of our time, volunteering, encouraging having impact um, because of that influence. If you're just winning for sake of winning or in business, if you're just making money to make money, I mean, maybe I won't speak for you. At some point it gets old. Mm -hmm. At some point you kind of go, okay, why? Why am I doing this? So again, the being great is awesome because again, I don't think God calls any of us to stink at what we do. You, you need to do it as great as you can do it. But what I've learned from Joe, and I think the reason our culture is what it is, is because from day one, we've watched our top leader coach walk the talk. And so what I mean by that is, hey, he goes harder than anyone on the racing side. He is relentless on going fast. However, he's involved in ministries all over the world. He's giving his time. He's, you see the way he treats people, the way he cares for his employees behind the scenes. And so he's living it out. And that's why, again, I talk in that section about treating people like a soul and not a transaction. Mm -hmm. That is part of it. And it is a hard balance in business. Look, and in, in, in whatever business you're in, if you're, you know, those that are listening, it's competitive, it's hard, it's often hard to stay focused on your mission while at the same time putting people first, putting mm -hmm. people before profits. It, it's it's hard to do. Um, putting people first in many ways is self-serving for an organization for this reason. When when you put people first in your organization people put a higher value on your mission yep. because you've put a higher value on them. So you end up performing better when you do that. It's counterintuitive. If you put profits first, then you just view people as a cog on the wheel. You're just going to churn people in and out more often, and that's going to hurt your mission. So caring for people for you know, again, treating them like a soul, not a transaction actually ends up <laughs> focusing you on your mission, but that's a long answer about culture. But again, culture is about the people. It's about the consistency of leadership and the company, you know, walking the talk. Um, and the bigger your organization is, the harder it is to manage culture. And we've we found that as we moved from what I describe in the book as moving from family business to factory. And, and you know, when you go from 15 people to 500, that's what it feels like. It's really hard 
um, it's really hard to keep that culture, to keep that feel, especially if you have a family feel in your, in your organization. Yeah. You know, you got to get that, that intentionality for sure. I mean, there's, there's so much intentionality behind it. God, so many things stand out of what you said in that, that great <laughs> I know, answer. I, 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 no, you, I mean, there, you said so many great things. Back. No, but, but what I, what I think is so powerful about what you said and the, and the point I want make people to, to really understand Again, it kind of ties in what we're talking about, like talent is a given. But yeah, okay, so you can sit there and you can say, well, we want to go fast, you know, because if we don't do that, nothing else really matters. Great. But but that by itself isn't sustainable, to your point. And that's and that's where, like you said, you go that extra step and you put that why behind it. Now you're starting to say, okay, this is the purpose. This is why we exist. This is the purpose, all that kind of stuff. That ties into the vision. Yeah. And the reason why that's so important and powerful is because it gives you – when you have that, and then in theory, everybody in the organization understand knows what it is. That gives everybody kind of the rocket fuel to sustain to sustain yourself in in the difficult in the difficulty that's going to come to this. It, it, but the the beautiful thing is, it can be joyfully difficult. Everything of significance is joyfully difficult, right? Sure. It's, it's so it's not about kind of going through in an anxiety free right. situation. That's a myth. We we have to. Uh, there's always going to be dragons to slay. And so what you're talking about is we're, we're going to define this so we can become intentional about the dragons we're going to slay. Right? Well, I was saying that's in life, and this is personal life, business, everything. Even when it's easy, it's hard. Exactly. It's hard. It, so anyone listening, don't I do not want you to think this is easy and that the why part always makes sense. But I think the why applies to you as an individual and to, to the people who work here as individuals, knowing their why. And why are they doing it? Why are you going into work every day? What are the things that give you energy? What's important to you? Um, and, and appreciating that about people is important because, again, if they're healthy and they've got decent work-life balance and they're scratching that itch of their why in their life, they're going to be better at work. But, I, again, I'd be lying if I said that was easy. It's a hard balance. I mean, when you have right. to stay on mission in the business we're in, and I imagine in most of the businesses of the people listening – you have to have a relentless sense of urgency. I talk about that in the book. There's a chapter called The Last Plane Out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That is literally how Joe treats everything. <laughs> so if we've got a meeting or a decision to be made or a crisis, whatever that thing is, you know, you call it, it's the cat with the laser pen. When his eye, when his gaze strikes that laser, that is all he's thinking about. And none of us, <laughs> and I've again, it's been 30 years for me. So when, whenever that arrives, none of us rest until whatever that, until that box gets checked. Joe, Joe has a sense of urgency like I have never seen. And it's, it's an example to me of really to stay on mission as a leader. Somebody's got to have a sense of urgency. Someone's got to have it. And that is, that permeates through the building. So it doesn't matter what department you're running. You sense it from Joe. All right. Well, coach, coach is going hard. I got to go hard. Coach is urgent about this. I'm, I'm not, Coach wants to deal with this right now, not tomorrow. Then I'm going to deal with it right now, not tomorrow. And so when you think about that on the one hand, and then you think, well, how do you do that and not bulldoze people on the route to doing it and, and forget about people's families or whatever? Mm-hmm. And the easy answer is it's very hard. Yep. And I talk about being fiercely, fiercely intentional with your schedule. And I'm a, I'm a planner, so it's easier for me. For some people, you have got to take control as best you can to, to build balance in your life or, or it will overwhelm you. Again, keeping a sense of urgency and staying on mission and not having work-life balance, you can't, you can't sustain that for a long time. So for me, 
it looked different at different stages of my career. And, you know, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're in medical school, hey, the margin and the balance you're going to have in your life are probably going to be different than what they are for me right now or for someone else. And that's okay. It may be five minutes here or, you know, whatever. Pick your battles and figure out the things that are important to you, your why, the things that are important. But, and again, I'm, I'm kind of weaving into a lot of stuff here, but that all goes back to, to build the culture that you want. You've got to have healthy people that are healthy in their life and that, that understand their why, that understand the company's why, that have somewhat work-life balance. Again, understanding it looks different depending on what job you signed up for. I imagine if you're the chief of staff at the White House, your, your work-life balance is going to look different yeah. than maybe somebody else because that's a choice you made for a season of your life. And that may be okay, but at some point, you're not going to sustain that forever. So yeah, every season, it looks different, but you got to have a plan and be intentional in every season. Yeah. And, and, and knowing that and speaking back to the power of knowing your purpose, your why, having that, doing that work, which is not a light load. I mean, I don't think people fully appreciate how difficult it is to kind of define that. It does take a tremendous amount of thought, thought and work, but that gives you the fuel to be able to to make those decisions on what's the priority at the moment, right? If you have that solid foundation, then you can go, okay, my priority is this at the moment and, or I can't, yeah. I can't take my eyes off of this. I got to pull back on this a little bit and put a little more here. You know, I, I made a chart early in my career that I talk about in the book where when my kids were young and I honestly, I would kind of keep a calendar and I would make a list of stuff. There was the have to do's mm-hmm. and the probably should do's and then the, yeah could do's, but don't have, you know, I kind of, you know, whatever, whatever applies to your job, because in, in, in the line of work I am, I'm in, I could have gone to a dinner or an event every single night. There was always yep. a sponsor to see a function to go to always. And early in my career, particularly when I was single, I went to all of it because it was networking. And I was like, I need to, again, I'm trying to deliver value. And part of my value is the relationships I have. I got to make more. So I was, I was a maniac and I went to all, all that stuff and I loved it. And then it got to a stage of life where I started saying, okay, all right, here's two dinners I have to go to. And I would share with my family, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to miss this one thing. But on the flip side, there were a couple of things at work that they, I would be like, you know what? Someone else is Can't going to that. It. I'm not doing it. Yeah. I'm not going on this, yeah. this thing because I got something important at home. And it was a balance. And it's funny. I talk about it in the book. I call it cheating on work. And it's kind of a dramatic way of saying, I don't mean cheating in an unethical way. No, I get you. People don't think twice about letting work cheat on them. How many, you know, again, dinners, you're, you know, you're, you're off doing something for your, you're on a run or you're doing something with your kid or your spouse or whatever, you're taking a nap and, you know, work's calling you, bugging you, and you don't think twice. And people kind of brag about that. Well, I, I, you know, I was, I was at the office late and I, you know, I gave up everything to do that. Okay. Hey, that's awesome. You went hard. You were fulfilling the mission, but why is it on the other side? There's this shame and I got to sneak out early if I'm going to do this, or I'm going to take a call from, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't cheating on work is like scandalous. And so I'm like, Hey, don't be afraid if work's going to cheat on you, which, which I signed up for a job where work's going to cheat on my life all the time. And it's okay. Again, I don't complain about it because I signed up for it. Conversely, I am not going to apologize when I cheat on work once in a while and go, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take this afternoon and go do something that's important to my son. I want to show him that, or I'm going to go for a run for myself or what, right. Again, whatever it is. And again, if you, it goes back to, if you pick the right people, they're not going to take advantage of that. 
there are people who will take advantage of that and they'll disproportionately cheat on work and, and that will figure itself out. But if you're delivering value and you're indispensable and doing all these things, a healthy you is important. And again, I, I'm speaking to myself because this is hard to remember in our business and probably in many of your businesses because we're so bent on, you know, climbing the ladder or over, you know, there's just, or really, there's just a lot to do every day at work. And so it's hard, it's hard to have that, but honestly, that's probably one of the most important messages in my book for me is just finding that being intentional about balance. Cause if you are not healthy in your life, it's just not going to last and you're going to do nobody any good, you know? Yeah. It's a prioritization balance, right? You're always looking at the priorities all the time. Yeah, and it's that it, that's again why it speaks to why this is so hard, particularly as you go from a family business to a factory, it becomes yep. that much more important, right? Having that awareness of what's going on, have, having that emotional intelligence to look outside of yourself and see what's going on, it's it, it's it's ton, it's hard work. You know what reminds me, what Joe and it, I see this in you, and I'm I'm just sensing this, what it's like working for this racing team. I think it's that I talk about it on the show a lot, but I think it's that combination of inti- having this level of intensity, this intensity of will about something, and you combine that with the humble, teachable spirit, and where that Venn diagram intersects. That's the sweet Ooh. spot. That to me is what is, is is the RPMs we should be running at all the time, trying to get into that sweet spot. And it's you yeah. don't if if I'm just nothing but a humble, teachable spirit, I'm not going to. Cr- I'm, I'm probably not going to achieve the impossible or, or levels of significance, right? If I just had a humble, teachable spirit, you know, Joe's dream would have stayed a dream on an eight and a half, eleven piece of paper, right? But if and then if you go too far the other way, just you're just in this intense maniac. Well, that's where lives get destroyed, and you know, and and well, it's also accountability, putting people around you that help you in areas you can't help yourself, and yeah. vice versa. Again, if me and Joe were clones. Of- each other i wouldn't have been here this long right most of our leadership group you know makes each other better because there's some areas where somebody might be a visionary but isn't good with the details and then you have someone who's the opposite and you can't do everything yourself and i think that's no i think that's a good word but i i I would tell you this it is um it is a struggle of always feeling like you're not great at anything that yeah. you're just average. So because you're straddling this line of, yeah. well, if I just went all in on this thing, I'd be incredible, <laughs> but I can't do that because then this will fall apart. But if I'm, if I'm great at this thing over here, so again, pick whether it's, you know, you've got a personal hobby that you want to be great at. Well, you, you spend all your time on it. You're not going to be employed. And then right. if you, you know, um, and then you, again, if you give all your time to your family and no time to work, well, that's not a great example either, because you're, you're not being a good example of, of, of being a diligent worker or whatever, but if you spend all your time at work, it's going to end up, yeah, your other things are going to crumble. So it's finding that balance of, <laughs> you know, being, you know, being really good at all of those things. And, and which, which means again, you've got to have margin, you've got to find some margins. There's going to be some things you got to say no to in your life. You got to decide what's important. I have a little circle illustration in the book just called investing in who, in what matters most. And I make circles and, you know, the inner circle is the people the closest to me. And then there's about four layers of circles from, you know, family, dear friends, acquaintances, you know, whatever, and reevaluating 
where am I spending my most time? Which circle? And often you go, wow, it's the people on the outer circle that are getting all of all of my time and my attention. That's not right. How do I how do I flip that? So it's just looking at your calendar and saying, what am I what am I doing with my life and my time? Who's getting my time? Who am I listening to? Who am I investing in? And and trying to prioritize it. Otherwise, you're going to end up frustrated. And you still might, because again, I, I, I'm, I'm still hacked off. There's only 24 hours in every day. It's <laughs> right. not enough. Yeah, but, never you know. You gotta, you gotta use them wisely. Yeah, it's our number one commodity we've been given is our time. Yeah, you know, you hear it all the time, but it is true. It is true. And as I'm getting older, I feel that's that, that's the thing that kind of gives me the most anxiety. I feel like I'm, and we are. I'm running out of time. I feel like there's so much more I want to do, and there's so many more things I want to experience, and I just feel like I don't have enough time half the time. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Well, the book is is called Taking the Lead. Great job. I love the principles. So much value-packed content. Principle one, deliver more than you cost. Principle two, creating a winning, create a winning culture. The third one, stay on mission. The fourth, treat people as souls, not transactions. And the fifth one, win at life. 20 chapters, um, stuff that I just find near and dear to my heart, stuff we've talked about here for eight years on this show. Is there anything, Dave, that, you know, in the last minutes here that, that we didn't cover that you really wanted to get across? I mean, or did we hit all the high points you, you thought? Well, was- I, I, I would love it. Again, I'd be very grateful. Um, my, my portion of the proceeds I'm donating to the J.D. Gibbs Legacy Fund, which actually uh, funds uh, urban ministry here in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. is dear to my buddy J.D.'s heart uh, before he passed away and mine. Um, so I can shamelessly plug the book because I'm, yeah. <laughs> and the money's going, to, my, my portion's going to charity. Um, yeah. And you can check out taking the lead um, And you can read on there the endorsements that I've been uh, very blessed to get from people in business, many of our drivers, uh, some, you know, folks in different ministries, different things that have said some nice things about the book and you can, you can pre-order it there. And after June 8th, you can, it'll, uh, you can order it. Uh, it'll be uh, shipping as of June 8th. So um, no, just grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. And uh, um, again, uh, just want to hope it, hope the book is an encouragement, no matter what stage of your career that you're in. And Hey, just like I've been talking about my theme, I hope when you buy the book that the book delivers more value to you then you paid for it. And that's a good lesson in everything that we do. Well, it, it's value packed. I mean, you did a really good job and, you know, in a sea of, there's tons of leadership books and I, and I've read a lot of them here in the last eight years. I really thoroughly enjoyed this one. And I think, I think you've knocked it out of the park. And again, it, it speaks to your, that intensity of will and that humble teachable spirit that you, that I, I got that when I read the book. And I certainly see that as I'm sitting across from you right now. So, I mean, just awesome job. Really well, good. and congrats to you. You're, you're doing a great job on the podcast. I know you, you also have another, another kind of full-time job too. So you're, I know <laughs> yeah. you're getting after it and this is great to, to do this. And I've gotten to listen to some episodes and you do it, you do a good job with it. So, and thanks to everyone who invested the time to listen today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I'll have links to all of, all of your stuff there, Dave, uh, how to get the book, how to pre-order, how to visit the website. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. I, I hope we can stay in touch. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concepts of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. 
Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we work together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.